0: Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores? Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now save 40% on Sleep Number special edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. And now, from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN, The Axe Files, with your host, David Axelrod.
1: There are a lot of great stories in American politics, but one of the best is the story of Senator Patty Murray, who uh, had no inkling about a career in politics until uh, politics encroached on the life of her and her family, and she decided to take action. I had a chance to sit down with Senator Murray, who is now the highest-ranking woman in the United States Senate and the third-ranking Democrat in the U.S. Senate, uh, earlier this week in Seattle. At the beginning of a very eventful week in our nation's capital, Senator Patty Murray, it's so good to be with you. Um, you know, I've had lots of folks uh, on this podcast who, even if they don't say it, you get the sense that they were thinking from the time that maybe from birth that they would might be a governor, a senator. A president of the United States. I think you probably can point to a few of your colleagues in the United States <laughs> Senate who fit that description. But I am willing to bet back in the day in Bothell, Washington, that uh, you were not thinking that you would one day be the number three ranking Democrat in the United States Senate.
2: Never, ever occurred to me, actually. <laughs> Never. I mean, I grew up in a big family, seven kids, didn't have a lot. My dad ran a dime store on Main Street of Bothell, a thousand people in the town. And, uh, and my mother and dad always, you know, made us believe that we could achieve whatever we wanted to. But certainly politics, certainly not being in the United States Senate ever occurred to me as something that I would go for.
1: And talk to me a little bit about uh, your folks. I know you say your dad ran this uh, five and times I know your mom uh, took care of you guys, and looked after you guys, uh, and then he got sick.
2: Yeah. You know, w- we were a typical family then. Um, my, well, I don't know how typical. There were seven kids in our family, several cats and dogs and <laughs> <laughs> what all. Um, and, and I think, you know, we didn't have a lot. Uh, my dad had a Pretty middle class, probably lower middle class job, ran a five and ten cent store in Bothell. And, uh, but we never. Yeah, a veteran, he was a uh, veteran. He was a veteran of, of the war and came home and he'd been injured, but. Uh, uh, it wasn't a big part of our lives. Uh, and my mom stayed home and raised us, as actually most moms did at the time. And I think like a lot of people, they just thought, this is our life and nothing else is going to happen. And we'll just plod along and, and things will go okay. Well, that wasn't the course that my family ran into. My dad was uh, diagnosed with multiple sclerosis when I was 15. And was I'm, he
1: displaying symptoms? To, yeah, was there a worry f- about him that led you, him to go and see a doctor?
2: You know, um, I, re- I remember it well. From, from the time I was an early teenager, my dad would fall down very easily. Uh, I remember one time um, he fell down and somebody walking towards us looked at him and called him a drunk and my mm-hmm. dad didn't drink. and uh, And so, you know, as a kid, you're kind of, this just doesn't feel good. But it was at a time when um, healthcare was expensive for families. They didn't go check it out, and uh, so it took probably three or four years before uh, they finally did, and and he got the diagnosis. And MS is not easy to diagnose; certainly wasn't then. So it took a while, Uh, and you know. But that that was life changing for our family. How, How
1: did it change your family's life?
2: Well, my dad worked for a bit, but not for very long. Uh, and uh, he, the man who owned the store that he ran told them that he just wasn't capable of doing it anymore. So all of a sudden, my family, when I was a teenager, and again, I'm one of the older kids in my family. We, uh, my sister is 13 years younger than I am, so we ranged, a broad range. Um, all of a sudden, he didn't have a job, and he didn't have an income. And my mom, who'd stayed home, She'd had a few years of college, but quit to get married, and uh, didn't have any skills. hadn't been working. Had to all of a sudden take that responsibility of seven kids, taking care of my dad who was ill, uh, and making sure we were all okay. It was it was rough.
1: Let me ask you about the health care because uh, you mentioned it that health care was expensive. Did you guys have insurance? How how uh, how? Did you take care of all of seven yeah. kids? And, <laughs> well, we didn't go to the
2: doctor very often. Uh, you know, we you, you didn't go to the doctor unless it was really bad. I mean, I remember my mom falling one time and breaking her ankle. She knew it was broken, but she didn't go to the doctor because they didn't have the money. Uh, and later on in my life, my mom limped badly because she'd had a broken ankle at one time and didn't get it taken care of. So health care wasn't something that, you know, that was... Easily accessible or affordable, especially with a big family like that, um, and uh, and I think that's one of the reasons today I feel like it's something families should have. You shouldn't have to give up basic health care. Uh, my my parents shouldn't have struggled. Uh, I remember uh, when my parents, well, my dad, of course, had MS, and we were out of the house by then, uh, but he didn't go to the doctor very often, and my mom had arthritis and then heart problems, and I distinctly remember my mom saying to me one time that they were crawling to Medicare. And I thought, this is this isn't what my country should be about. Uh, it had a huge impact on me. Now, today, years later, when I never expected to be thinking about it again.
1: Yeah, uh, I, I want to. We'll, in a bit, we'll talk about what you're doing right now on that issue because you're going back as we speak to Washington to work on the health care issue yet again. Right. Uh, I know, uh, but uh, how did your mom uh, deal with the with the burden? That she suddenly had to assume.
2: Well, my mom, um, a brave soul, and uh, had to swallow her pride and courage and applied for uh, welfare and food stamps uh, that got her by for a few months uh, and applied for school. And fortunately, um, she got into a program at Lake Washington Vocational Tech School, which was what what it was called at the time, and uh, to get an accounting degree, which would be two years. Uh, And meantime, found a part-time job at a another small store that she could put a little bit of food on the table my dad was a veteran so he got a little bit of money from the VA uh, and we struggled Mm -hmm. Um, I mean when I uh, since the time I was early teenager I worked Uh, I worked at stores I worked part-time I worked in the summer I worked Friday nights when everybody else was and so did all of my brothers and sisters because we all had to contribute um, but it was a tough time because, you know, getting welfare is not easy when you are a prideful person. Uh, and when I hear people put down people on welfare today, I just I think about the look in my mom's eyes when she had to go apply for that. But she needed it. And you know what? That little bit of help got us back on our feet. My mom got her degree. She worked hard. Uh, we all pitched in, uh, and she got her degree, uh, got a job, and um, was somehow able to get us all through school. Um, all seven kids in my family went on to college and got their degrees, Yeah, that's uh, which amazing. is um, yeah. amazing. But we had a country who believed in investing in people, no matter who you are or what happened to you or where you come from. And we all had work-study programs that uh, helped us get jobs. We all had Pell Grants and student loans and uh, and the support. We needed to make it through, and I look at families today who are struggling, and I think my country has to be there for you. That's that's part of our obligation as a nation. And I look at those seven kids now, all adults, all giving back in various ways. I have four brothers, uh, from an attorney to a firefighter to uh, Microsoft. ingenious (laughs) Ingenious <laughs> innovator, uh, and sister who is a teacher, and you know, and a brother who's a sports writer. I mean, we all contribute back. You got a to, whole
1: community, right? We there. have a
2: community right there, <laughs> and a United States senator, yes. <laughs> by That's, the way. Yeah. But I wouldn't be here today. They wouldn't have those jobs today if our country hadn't been a support network for a family that hit some
1: hard times. You, um, you, you got married uh, uh, to your uh, college. Sweetheart, mm-hmm. uh, and you uh, and you had children. You were raising your children. You were uh, uh, working at a preschool uh, program. Tell yeah. me, tell me what happened there, because your entry sort of into the world of politics is a pretty unique story.
2: Well, you know, I I never envisioned being in politics. Never thought about it. There were people who made decisions, and I just wasn't quite aware of it, um, until I had a family of my own, two small kids, and they were enrolled in a co-op preschool program that we have here in the state of Washington that is uh, partially subsidized by the state, and the parents pay some tuition. It's run through the community colleges. It was a great program. I have a college degree, but I didn't know how to raise kids. So this parent education program was a great program, a preschool program, and a parent education program, so that you could learn alongside your kids about what's best for them and how to handle situations and you know all the things that go into parenting Uh, and one day uh, our instructor told us that the program was going to end and I was just like why you can't do this this is this is obviously really a great program and she said well the state legislature cut the funding no. And my first question is, well, who are they? <laughs> and it turns out they were the... Did you le- even
1: know who your legislator no, was at the time? No, I had
2: no idea. I mean, I voted, but I, it wasn't a part of my consciousness. As I went through life, I uh, knew there were people that made laws and things like that but I didn't really focus on it Uh, and uh, when she said they did this I thought oh well they just don't know what they're doing I just need to go tell them how great a program this is and they'll turn around tomorrow and put the money in and so I put my two kids in the car they were one and three at the time Uh, drove a hundred miles to Olympia with my two kids in the back car. State Capitol. Have you ever been there before? Never been there before, ever. And uh, drove in, parked my car, and hauled these two little kids into the Capitol looking for somebody to talk to, to say, you know, you've got this program you can't cut. Uh, And and, uh, I ran into people and... Told them my story, told them about the preschool, and uh, finally I uh, had one uh, person say, well, who you really need to talk to is um, this one uh, senator that is in charge of this. And I asked who he was, and they told me, and I went to his office. I mean, okay, (laughs) he's no different than me. Um, I went to his office with my two kids, and he kindly listened to me uh, and then just looked right at me and said, you know, you can't make a difference. You're just a mom in tennis shoes, which I was. But that's not all I was. I was someone who cared about my community and my family. I cared about my uh, country, I wanted this program, and I thought that that is so
1: wrong. So, what did you what What did you say, and what did you think? I know what I would have said, but <laughs>
2: I was mad. I, uh-huh. I was just, I mean, I put my two kids back in the car, and I drove home for a hundred miles, saying, "This guy is not going to get away with this. He just isn't." And I got home, and I just started calling other parents whose kids had been in the program, and uh, and they put me in touch with other parents, and I and this was pre. Cell phones and pre-faxes and all those things that allow communication. And I just started...
1: For better and worse.
2: (laughs) For better and worse. Uh, And people would say, oh, you know, there's a program like this in Moses Lake or in Vancouver or Tacoma. I think I know a parent whose kid went here. And pretty soon I had put together a list of over 13,000 moms and dads whose kids had been or were enrolled in this preschool program. And I organized... Tree charts and got people to be in charge of different legislative districts, and uh, and we formed an organization. So you became an organizer
1: by necessity. By, ch-
2: by I I think by ne- by anger is what, yeah. <laughs> what I would say. That they just could not get away with this because it was it was a put down to me that I couldn't make a difference because I was a mom in tennis shoes. But it was a put down to every single person in the state by saying you don't make a difference, you're not important. Well, I grew up believing that everybody is important and that we all contribute in different ways. And uh, and I, I thought our voices are just as important as yours. I don't care if you're a tall guy in a dark suit with a red tie and you look important or if you're just a mom in tennis shoes. You have a right to have a say. And, uh, and that's what we did, and we, we fought back. And you won. And we won. And, you know, it wasn't easy. But I will tell you, for the next three months, those state legislators did not have any hearings without a row of moms with little kids in the front staring at them. And they knew it. And we held rallies in Olympia with our kids. Uh, and, and finally, um, they overturned the, uh, the procedure and reinstated the money.
1: You know, that story reminds me. I, I had a client years ago. You may have met John Street. He was the mayor of Philadelphia. But John started off as a a housing rights organizer in North Philly, and he was leading a protest at City Hall. And uh, uh, he was trying to talk to a member of the city council. And as he was being carried out by the police, the councilman said, you want to talk to me, you get elected to the city council. (laughs) And so John ran. I don't know if he ran against that guy or, or one of his allies, but he ran and won. And and that's what prompted him to run for the city council. So yeah. organizing by anger. <laughs>
2: organizing by anger and organizing by understanding what a democracy is. Yeah. This isn't a them. This des- is a us. What
1: you described is really democracy at its best. You know, we saw a little of that, it seems to me, on the health care issue uh, over this past uh, period of time when uh, your colleagues on the Republican side there were trying to – Repeal the Affordable Care Act. It seems to me, and you would know better than I, because you talk to all those uh, folks all the time, that all of those people who showed up at town hall meetings had a profound impact on, on. Members. Absolutely.
2: And you know, it wasn't that they just went to those town halls and say, said, don't vote this way. They told their personal stories. This is why this is important to me. This is what the impact will be. They made it real. They made it about America. That's why it was so powerful. It was who we are, our families, our stories, what we care about, what we believe in. Uh, And they told very personal stories. Many of them courageously told personal stories, and it had an impact. Uh, I mean, there's been so many um, uh, parallels between this year and what I feel like I did many years ago that got me started in politics. Because when you're not paying attention, things happen to you. But when you're paying attention and you go out and you get involved and you talk about what's important and what's real and tell a story, that's what changes the policies in this country. It made a difference for me then and it made a difference in healthcare this year. And I'm I'm just delighted because that's what I think our forefathers wanted.
1: Yeah. You you know, I I skipped over one part of your bio that I think is really uh, meaning uh, meaningful and important and and that is the time you spent uh, working at a VA mm-hmm. a hospital here in Seattle right. uh, and in, in a, a, a mental health uh, a unit a psych ward essentially that's right uh, Talk a little bit about that.
2: So this is important for a number of reasons. Uh, people often say, what, what, um, what's, what do I do right now if I want to run for office? And I think the question should be, what have you done that's made an impact, an impression on you that makes you want to run for office? And what I did— well, that's, the- a, that's
1: just so important, <laughs> you know, yeah, because the question I always used to ask people when they come to me and say, I want to run for something, I always would say, Why? Yeah. Why do you want to run? And if they couldn't answer that question, my advice was always, I don't think you should. Yeah,
2: exactly. Yeah. Well, my what happened to me at the VA was part of my life story that I never thought, well, this is going to get me into politics. But it's part that now that I am in politics, I think about every day. Because I was in college during the Vietnam War. And many people I knew were going to war, a very unpopular war. Yes. Uh, and... Unpopular when they came home, they were put down. Yeah, veterans were what put a really down. One of really dark periods dark. in our history. Yeah.
1: because the 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 those who served bore the brunt of the, the pub, public decision. anger about yeah. the policy.
2: Yeah. Um, so I was in college and uh, and volunteered to do my senior work at the Seattle VA um, because I just felt like. I need to to see what is happening to these people that everybody's protesting, the real people. And I worked on the psychiatric ward, um, and it was powerful. I mean, I was dealing with young men and women my age coming home from Vietnam mental health problems that had no names at the time. We didn't have PTSD. We didn't have the kinds of research. We had it. We
1: just didn't know what Uh, it was. Right.
2: And they were being put down for being veterans. And every one of these young people had such an impression on me that they had chosen or were sent to a war, fought for a country, came home, and our country should have been there for them. They shouldn't have been on a locked ward. They shouldn't have been... Uh, told they weren't important. They, sh- We should be doing everything we can for them. And that had a huge impression on me because I saw a lot of people who didn't go to war who were lucky that they didn't have to go to war. Um, and they needed to be participating and taking care of the people who chose to go.
1: One thing I wanted to thank you for was, um, uh, you know, I have a, a lifelong or an adult lifelong uh, relationship with epilepsy because I have a daughter who was born with it or nearly born with it, seven months old. My wife started a research foundation called Cure, Citizens United with Research and Epilepsy. And you were involved in starting these epilepsy uh, centers right. around the country to, to research epilepsy and work on epilepsy, uh, on the epilepsy issue. It's important relative to these veterans because traumatic ba- brain injuries are a leading cause of epilepsy. And I think one of the signature uh, injuries of these two wars in, in Iraq and Afghanistan are, going, are sadly traumatic, brain injuries, Correct. and so we're going to see a lot of these cases. So you uh, you helped uh, another gener- other generations, future generations of of uh, of veterans by doing that. But um, on the mental health issue, uh, what what did you learn from that experience?
2: Well, I learned that these were not somebody else. These were real people. And they all had personal stories. And many of them felt really alone and couldn't deal with what was going on with them. And we didn't have a lot of research at the time that was really applied to to mental health. Um, And years later, when I was in the Senate, I never knew when I was working at the VA I would ever be in a position to actually do things like this. Um, It was right after the Gulf War uh, that I went into the Senate. And I had noticed how many people were really being left behind if you have a physical wound of war you have a much greater chance of someone saying thank you for your service what can i do uh, business saying what can we do to help you than the mental health but it is just as real just as critical is curable and these people have as much right to the kind of care that everyone else does. So it's just been a passion of mine to make sure that they get the help and support that they need.
1: Why do you think there's been such a, a, a spike in suicide rates among, uh, among veterans?
2: I think that a lot of them come home and feel like their lives have changed so dramatically Their peer group that they left went off and went to college and are working in some high-tech company. They went off and served our country and they came home to a world that doesn't understand what they went through. They don't find a place for themselves. We have to work to make sure they have that place. The error that we made in Vietnam should not be repeated now, where people come home, not spit on this time. We do a much better job of saying thank you, but they still don't feel like we understand what they went through and are really grateful for it. Not just grateful like, you know, thank you, but really making sure that they have the support they need to reintegrate in a good way.
1: It is striking uh, how different it is from the Vietnam era. You know, now you go to a ball game, and at every ball game, some veteran is honored, and the, tr- the crowd stands up as one uh, yeah. and-, and cheers for them. But you also have uh, a homeless population uh, many of whom are, are sadly veterans who people walk around, step over. Some of them are Vietnam-era veterans, but uh, we got a lot of we have a lot of work to do. I have to take a brief break, and I'll be right back with Patty Murray. So let's get back to your story. Um, you 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 had this great success. Uh, you. Turned away the the um, lunkhead who made the <laughs> remark about the the moms and tennis shoes, uh, and you you obviously got a sense of empowerment from that, and you decided to run uh, for the local school board.
2: Yeah, well, I I learned a really important lesson from that. You can sit at home and gripe about what happened to you or what happened to people around you, or you can go out and find other people who feel passionate and work with them and change policies you don't agree with. And I found that I liked that path much better than yelling at the television or griping about it because I care about my neighborhood and my community and my state and my country. I want it to be a better place. And I found that you can make it a better place. You have to work hard. you got to bring a lot of people together. Um, and it isn't easy, but, you know, that's how you make a difference, and, and that's what's important. And that's really what got me into politics. So uh, when I, uh, after I, I got involved in that, um, my kids happened to be starting school at the time, and I thought, well, who's making the decisions here? I saw what happened in the state legislature, and I went to a school board meeting, all nice people, but they none of them had kids in school. And I thought, well, who is speaking for me here? Who understands what moms and dads are going through today? I, they're nice, but who has that real... Who can sit at that board meeting and say, this is what's happening? And so I decided to run, run for the school board and uh, and ran against a really nice gentleman. He, you guys uh, ran in districts? We, we ran uh, dist- school-wide, Shoreline mm. School District, the whole district. And I just started knocking on doors and talking to people and learning how to raise money the hard way and <laughs> by asking for it. We actually, the first fundraiser I ever did You'll appreciate this. Um, I told my husband, I just can't ask people for money to, to run for office because people don't have money to give. So we held a garage sale and uh, lost money because we ended up giving things away to people who needed it. So I realized <laughs> that this was not going to work, that you actually had to ask people to invest in you. And That's I, a you
1: hard did, adjustment.
2: Hard adjustment heart adjustment, but um, we worked hard. And then sadly, just a few months before the election, the gentleman that I was running against found out that he had a terminal disease and wasn't going to live long. So I stepped back from running against him, ended up losing by 300 votes. And shortly after the election, he passed away and I was appointed to his seat because the school board members um, felt that that I should replace him, which was Really great, so that really started my political movement. I lost and I won by <laughs> by losing, but uh, by, by
1: showing basic human decency.
2: I think that's part of it. Yeah,
1: yeah.
2: Uh, And i uh, I loved it. I loved being part of the process and being involved in the decisions. But I kept running into the state legislature that was making decisions that weren't supportive of schools. Uh, so I remember distinctly going down to Olympia one day as a school board member and looking down at the state senate. And thinking, oh, my God, they're all bald heads. These There's there's nobody Not like that me. Not that that's a bad thing. <laughs> no. <I won't> say, <laughs> but when the entire state Senate looks like that, then you say, who's speaking for me? Who's my voice? Who understands what's happening? And I think they need to hear a different kind of voice here. And I announced I was running against an incumbent. He'd been there for 15 years, and everybody told me there's no way you're going to beat him. And I ended up beating him because I worked hard.
1: And you, similarly, uh You kind of, you had sort of one of those moments uh, when you decided to run for the U.S. Senate. Explain that.
2: Well, after winning the state Senate seat, I loved being involved in the policy decisions and working issues through. Uh, Never dreamed that, you know, I'd go on from there, but I came home one weekend and watched the Clarence Thomas hearings. Uh, on the TV, and I just was stunned that this was my United States Senate. These were the people representing me. And I remember saying to some friends, there's nobody there saying what I would say. And I said that night, I'm going to have to run for the Senate because they, <laughs> they need somebody to say what I would say. And nobody thought I had a chance, I mean, obviously. but you run-
1: Yeah, because you were running against an incumbent, an Brock incumbent. Adams. That's correct. Now, was there anybody even... Uh, did you have to go through a primary or were, or were they just happy oh, yeah. to have a candidate?
2: No, no, no. There was a primary. There was uh, several candidates in it, a, con- a congressman, a former state senator, n- a number of people in the primary. Um, but, you know, uh, I, I ran by working hard, by including people in my campaign. No one gave me a chance. In March of election year, running for the United States Senate, they did a poll and I was at 3%. I wasn't dissuaded. I knocked on doors. I called up all those moms and dads I'd met fighting for um, preschool programs years before, and I asked them to hold a coffee for me in their community just to talk to their friends and neighbors, and I think we stunned everybody when, when I won the primary. But but I think a lot of people felt like I did. They had watched the Clarence Thomas hearings, and they really felt like the United States Senate was not a representative of the entire country when it was missing voices like women.
1: Yeah, you know, uh, uh, that was... I was in. I'm from Chicago. Obviously, Carol Mosley Braun ran that year, much uh, for much the same
2: yeah.
1: uh, reason, and ended up uh, and ended up winning. But when you guys arrived there, uh, how many women were actually in the Senate
2: before we won in 1992? There were two women. When we won, we made it all the way to six women in the Senate.
1: Yeah. What was that like? I guess you had had a little bit of an orientation because you had all those bald-headed guys in the <laughs> Washington <laughs> I, State there. I Senate, knew the room. So, yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh,
2: you know, it, I think there was – because there was such a tension on women running that year that we were actually given a real opportunity. I think um, many of the men in the Senate who'd never had to work with women in the Senate before – we're a little afraid of us. <laughs> like, are we going to be bomb throwers? And I think we proved ourselves. We sat down and we worked just like they did. We fought for our states. We did our homework. We knew the issues. And uh, and I think... I, I remember something that I, I think made a real difference. Um, when I was, uh, one of the first debates we had in the Senate when I was elected was on family leave, and Ted Kennedy was running the debate, and there was a lot of, um, you know, numbers and, you know, the the kinds of discussions that most men like to have with charts and graphs. And uh, I came out on the a floor of the Senate, and I told the story of a friend of mine who uh, lost her job because her son had been diagnosed with leukemia and was given only a few months to live, and her boss actually said to her, you're going to have to choose between being with your son or being at work. So I told that personal story of why we need family leave and why it was so important to me. And I remember distinctly walking off the Senate floor, and I'd only been there a few months, and one of the male senators said to me, we don't tell personal stories here. And I just said, wait a minute, how do you pass policies that work if there aren't real stories that are attached to it? And he came to me years later, and he said, "You know, you really he really made me change my mind."
1: You worked on this issue, didn't you? In, in the state legislature yeah, I did. as well.
2: Yeah, it was one of the bills that I passed in our state legislature because of that same woman I just told you about. It had a real impact on me, and uh, and I fought very hard in our state senate and got our first family leave bill passed. So it was stunning to me to come back to the United States Senate and the first bill we worked on with Ted Kennedy uh, running the bill. Uh, and passed the first national family leave law. Blah,
1: blah, blah. What is it about? Uh, I mean, the, first of all, let me just say on my own behalf that I hate charts and graphs, so I must be in touch with my <laughs> feminine side. I, 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 I like stories better. <laughs> but um, um, tell me what uh, now. You have twenty women in the Senate. Mm-hmm. Uh, tell me what a difference that has made, and how do you see? You say we we do just what everybody else does. We represent our states and so on. Are there qualities that the women who have come to the Senate have brought, without making gross sort of generalizations, yeah. that have changed the nature of the Senate? I,
2: I absolutely believe that. Um, first of all, I think women come to politics to solve problems. and aren't, as, as you did. Aren't as enamored with the well, let's have a big debate. Somebody wins, somebody loses, and we all get to go home and do this again next year. <laughs> we don't have time for that. we got to get home and take care of our kids and our families. And we, can't, we really come to solve problems. So I think we are better collaborators. I'm talking about today, maybe 50 years from now it could be different. But I think women in politics tend to listen, uh, find solutions, and then work to get that done. And I've seen it many times. Uh, now,
1: the now, the Senate. women in the Senate uh, – you you gather is that right? On we do. A, on a on a regular basis, weekly basis, or something.
2: Yeah, we do. We've been doing that since Republicans I, and Democrats. Republicans and Democrats, and it's such an important part of our lives because when I came in nineteen ninety two, all six of us, Senator Barbara Mikulski, one of my heroes, yeah. said, "You know, um, there isn't any playbook for how we do this." Uh, so I think that it would be helpful for us to get together and we all agreed this all six of us that we had a really important role we needed to show women that they could do this job and you can't um not be supportive of each other because if any one of us failed then we would all have failed so we set up uh, monthly dinners that we all came together and we had two rules you could talk about anything but you can't tell anybody what you talked about and it's served us all these well, years. they go my next
1: five questions.
2: <laughs> well, it's you know it's it's a great way to get to know people, mm. to talk about the issues, to talk about the personal things that are often get lost in uh, in these really stressful times, and to really understand and know people um, about what makes them tick, what's important to them, what, what's. What's their family like? What what are their worries and concerns personally? Um, because then I think you can work with them better to find solutions.
1: Has it translated into um, – you, you suggest that with the way you you ended that last thought, but has it translated into um, tangible things that you can think of that would not have happened otherwise?
2: It's hard to say it wouldn't happen happened otherwise, but I do know we just had a health care yeah. – Debate in the country. Two women and played, two played a very large role there. Played a huge senators
1: role, Collins and Murkowski.
2: And I think that they uh, were able to talk with all of all of the women senators about some of the things they cared about and what was important to them. I I know what was important to them because they were telling us what was important to them. Yet they were shut out of the room. The Republican senators put thirteen men in a room and said, "Go figure out how to replace Obamacare." Yeah, let
1: me ask you about that because. Just, I'm asking you now, uh, like a political person to political person, what, what, what kind of strategy is that to, I mean, what are the optics of that? I, I was sort of stunned by it.
2: I was completely stunned. I think the women Republican senators were stunned, and I think most of them Do you think they were excluded was.
1: because the leader didn't think that they would be cooperative on the issue?
2: I think the leader knew exactly what they wanted. Both uh, Lisa and Susan made it very clear that they would not support a repeal of Obamacare that took away the funding for Planned Parenthood and millions of women in this country to get access to care they needed. And I think Mitch thought if he put them in the room that they would not be willing to go down a path that he wanted to go down.
1: You've done very well, uh, more than most, in a very rancorous, partisan environment, working with Republican colleagues, and uh, particularly uh, Senator Alexander, who uh, you're the ranking uh, member on the health, uh, education, labor, and what's, is it pensions? Yes, labor and pensions. Health, health,
2: health. Health education, labor, and pensions.
1: Was pensions added because it made for a better think, <laughs> acronym, or, 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 or I think
2: of all of those, pensions it's probably one we should be talking about a whole no lot kidding. more. Yeah, but yeah, it's in yeah.
1: there. Um, and uh, you worked together on the on the No Child Left Behind bill. Yeah. You also worked with Speaker Ryan, famously, mm-hmm. uh, and came to a budget agreement. Uh, talk to me about that process and. Um, And those two and what it is about your relationship that allowed you to to do what has thwarted so many people in Washington, which is to find common ground.
2: Well, let me talk about the budget deal with Paul Ryan, because that, remember, came about because we had been going through chaos in our country over budget shutdowns and agreements that couldn't happen and nobody was talking to anybody. The government had been shut down for several weeks and it was just people were feeling like their country wasn't working. Uh, And we agreed to open government again and voted to have the two budget chairs of the House and Senate sit down and see if they could figure this out. That happened to be me and Paul Ryan. And I remember voting for it and thinking, oh, boy. <laughs> okay. So I called Paul actually the next um, morning right away and said, let's, let's sit down and have breakfast. And we did. And we did not talk about budget, numbers, policies, or anything. We took the time to learn who the other person was and what was important to them. And that basic respect and trust served us well throughout the entire difficult, challenging process and allowed us to put together a budget agreement when no one else could. I think that word respect needs to be returned to politics today.
1: Where do you think he is right now, uh, Ryan? It seems like he is sort of buffeted. I mean, he was chairman of the Budget Committee then, and now he's Speaker of the House. Mm -hmm. And that is like the rocky shoals of legislating uh, as John ever. Boehner <laughs> yeah. and others can speak to um, how, how does Paul Ryan navigate uh, the situation that he's in
2: you know I do not envy him his current position he is trying to run a house of representatives with a group of Republicans whose only vote is no and when you're in the majority, you actually have to pass things so you need people to say yes, whether it's a budget or appropriations or policies, whatever it is uh and it's I think it's extremely challenging. I think he has the capability to listen, which is so important, but I think he has a challenging job trying to bring those people together uh to move things forward and uh and you know i I wish him the best of luck you know i i w- I do not agree with Paul Ryan on many policies, um, whether it's women's right to choose or whether it's Medicare policy and how he wants to restructure it and you know numerous things. But I do respect the man, and I do want him to be successful. Why? Because I want my country to be successful.
1: Let me, let me ask you, He, the president apparently, and uh, we'll, we'll know in, in a matter of hours, I guess, is going to punt um, – the uh, DACA program for the children of uh, undocumented uh, immigrants uh, to the to the Congress uh, and uh, and essentially say we're going to end this program in six months, but if Congress wants to do something about it, they can. Paul Ryan has ur- had urged him not to end uh, the program and clearly uh, is supportive of it. Can can you uh, the House and Senate agree? On this? Do you think there's enough support based on what you've seen and what you've heard from your colleagues uh, to uh, make permanent uh, this exemption for uh, the children of undocumented immigrants?
2: Well, here's what my advice to Paul Ryan is follow your heart. He knows what's right to do here, he knows the impact this will have to children and families in our country, some 800,000 young people who came here know no other country, know no other language, know no other family or home, and to tell them sorry. Uh, And I think that if he follows his heart and tells his Republican caucus, those of you who can't vote with this, fine, but we're going to bring it to the floor and we're going to vote on it, he will get the votes for it.
1: Yeah, because one of the obstacles in the past is this so-called Hastert rule this notion that uh, you have to have a majority of the majority in order to move a bill forward uh a lot of things, including a health care uh, uh, fix uh, for the Affordable Care Act, could have moved forward uh, had Democrats been involved right. in that. But well, what about on your side? Uh, do you think that I saw Orrin Hatch and some other Republicans? Orrin have- Hatch uh,
2: ha- had told the president not to go forward with this policy. I think others, and uh, I, I know that if they bring it up for, the, for a vote, that we will be able to permanently pass the policy. This is going to take leadership. You know what? Paul Ryan and Mitch McConnell's problem is not the votes on this. It's the leadership. You have to be willing to say, this is what's right for my country, rather than I'm worried if I bring this up that I'll get voted out of my leadership position people want leaders. They want people to speak from their heart. They want them to do the right thing. They don't want them to play politics. And I think we've got the votes if we have two leaders who will bring it up. Uh,
1: What did you think of the president's, assuming this is the president's decision and we're... I
2: I think it's appalling. I I think it's stunning to me, truly. I I have met so many young people who are contributing so much to our country. Uh, And
1: but n- isn't it? But let, uh, let me ask you this. It, it, wouldn't it be better uh, when, when President Obama moved forward on DACA? He said this is a temporary patch because we need the Congress to act. And, and you yeah. and others voted to do that some years ago. Yeah. Um, wouldn't it be better if Congress actually went ahead and did that?
2: I think it would be the right thing for Congress to do, but I am appalled that the president is using this as some kind of wedge issue, campaign promise to his voters to get done rather than for the right reasons. He could have said or may say, um, I think this is the right policy. I told you that I'm—you know my heart says it's the right thing to say and do. Uh, but I want Congress to act, and I would like them to act and show the country they're behind that. But to bully Congress and to do it, some kind of threat uh, is really just the wrong way to do it.
1: Well, by the time this po- podcast is heard... Uh, We will know the answer to that question. But the president will not have heard you. So if he does what you said, we'll have to give him credit for arriving at it on his own. (laughs) I will do that. We're going to take a short break, and we'll be right back with Senator Patty Murray. So I mentioned earlier that you're working with uh, uh, Senator Alexander uh, on the health care issue, and specifically the issue of health care exchanges. The, the Senate uh, on the vote of three Republicans uh, uh-huh. and all the Democrats uh, rejected uh, the repeal and replace approach uh, that was being advanced. Uh, but it does leave open what happens to these health care exchanges, which rely on uh, the subsidies that are part of the Affordable Care Act. And all over the country, we see, we see these premiums going up. Um, I saw one estimate that in your state they're they're going up some 23 Mm percent or something, and about half of it is attributed to anxiety on the part of the insurance companies that the Trump administration won't move forward on these subsidies. What is the state of play on this, and what do you and Senator Alexander hope to do?
2: Well, first of all, let me just say that, yes, we defeated the uh, repeal effort in the Senate by three votes. But it was really defeated by the hundreds of thousands of Americans who stood up and fought against an irresponsible bill. Yes. So I give them credit. Yes. Um, But uh, what we have said all along when we passed Obamacare many years ago, that this was the first step and we needed to continue to make sure that health care was affordable and accessible and to continue to find ways to do that. President Trump has taken a very different approach. He came into office to repeal Obamacare. Not sure why, other than he liked the words repeal Obamacare. Um, well, it's
1: very popular with his base.
2: Yeah. Okay. So it was a campaign promise, not a policy. And without any meaning behind the words. And since he felt so passionate about that, he has used his office and his, uh, and his administration to actually sabotage Obamacare by threatening not to make the payments that are required to be made to insurance companies that help them pay for uh, some of the uh, sicker folks who, are, who have health care. Therefore, insurance companies are saying, we're going to have to raise our rates because we don't know what's going to happen. And they can't operate on uncertainty. They can't operate by a president who is threatening not to subsidize to make the CSR payments, uh, because they have to look at their bottom line and say, we'll go under if he pulls out from paying these. Uh, So they are now um, raising their rates across the country. Uh, We're also seeing a number of what were called bear counties, where insurance companies were not offering again, uncertainty is most often named as as the reason for that. so what I have told Lamar Alexander, and I think many Republicans and Democrats agree is that we need to bring some stability to the marketplace so that we can make sure that we are working as hard as we can to lower the costs for um, people to be able to purchase insurance. Lamar and I have been talking over the last several weeks. we're going to start having hearings next week, uh, assuring that those CSR payments are mandatory that the administration can't just decide not to pay them is certainly part of that.
1: Um, one uh, and do you have a confidence that uh, Senator McConnell, if you if your committee moves on that, that Senator McConnell will We'll take it up on the floor.
2: Well, I've had the opportunity to work with Lamar Alexander before. He and I took on the challenge of rewriting No Child Left Behind yes. when no one else could come up with a solution. And I think we have a respect for each other and an understanding that um, that we have to work together. And we have to obviously – neither one of us are going to love something at the end of the day. But we have to work through a policy. And then, of course, we have to work through the votes. Do I know what McConnell will do? Will he say yes to Lamar? I am hoping he will, because I think the people of this country not only rejected repeal and replace, they said, we want you to work together to solve the problems that are there in health care. I think Lamar reco- recognizes that, and um, I'm going into this discussion and challenge with him with respect.
1: You know, it's an interesting point you make, which is that at the end of the day, you, you, neither of you will love the final product. Uh, that was true uh, on your budget uh, okay. deal with Ryan. And you took some heat, and, and so did Ryan, from the basis of your respective parties. Okay. It's called compromise. It's, okay. not very, it's not very fashionable right now.
2: It is not fashionable, um, but it is needed. It needs to be respected. We are a democracy. We are a country of a lot of different ideas. No one gets their way 100% of the time. But if you bear, keep in mind that the goal is to make things better, not to make it perfect, that's what has sustained us as a democracy for a very long time. And that's my job as a senator, is to sustain that movement forward, uh, fight for what I believe in, but at the end of the day, try and make it just a little better.
1: I, I thoroughly embrace what you just said, but I think that in moments of absolute candor that many of your colleagues uh, on both sides of the aisle and certainly in the House of Representatives would say, yeah, but my first obligation is to get reelected so that I can do those things. And I've got this rabid base, so there's only so so much I can do. I mean, it seems like you butt up against that now more than ever. Uh, and uh, it's a, a destructive impulse, it feels like.
2: The rabid base is important because they're fighting for basic policies that they want. You have to include them, you have to listen to them, you have to say what is their goal and fight for a goal. But you can't achieve 100%. And if we all just sit in our corners and fight with each other and say, you know, my way or the highway. We go nowhere as a country, and what we do is leave ourselves behind in a global economy.
1: Another issue that uh, apparently is going to come up or that the administration suggests they want to come up in Senator McConnell and Speaker Ryan is, is tax reform. Not exactly clear whether it's going to be reform or simply tax cuts, but what's your sense of the likelihood of tax reform actually happening, and will it be reform?
2: So let's start with the basic process of this. If the Republicans move forward in the same way that they did to repeal Obamacare, vote for a budget that says we don't want any Democrats at the table, we're going to do this by ourselves, and leave half the Senate out of the conversation, they're going to have a hard time getting the votes. And they're going to have a hard time having the public behind them. If they say we want to include Democrats, hear your ideas. You're not going to get everything, but actually listen to what we're talking about, which is not just tax cuts for wealthy, but actual tax reform that means middle-class families who've had wages that have been stagnant for decades actually have an opportunity to get ahead. They'll find us willing to work with them and maybe pass something. But the words tax reform, um, should not be a mislabel of a tax cut for the wealthiest Americans. And some hope that things are going to trickle down and life will be better for people who are fighting so hard today to take care of their families.
1: There really hasn't been a genuine tax reform in this country for 30 years. And the last time it was done, it was done by, uh, in, in the classic way, broadening the base and eliminating loopholes. Right. Uh is is that given the army, the phalanx of lobbyists that uh, patrol your precincts over there, is that is that possible today?
2: Well, you know, I remember my dad saying to me when I was sixteen um, and I learned to drive. Uh, he said, "With the keys comes the responsibility." Well, that's where the Republican Party is today. They got the keys. They have the White House. They have the majorities in the House and Senate what is the responsibility they want to take on? Do they want to jam through a partisan bill that gives tax um, breaks to corporations and multi-billionaires? Or do they really want to reform the tax code? I think that's a huge question right now. I'm worried it's not what I want to see happen. And I think the American people will fight back against it.
1: By jamming it through, it would be part of a Budget reconciliation? Yeah. Explain that. So
2: so going back to the repeal of Obamacare, what the Republicans did on the very first days we were in session in January is they passed what's called a budget reconciliation bill that uses an obscure process that allows them to pass something in the Senate with only 50 votes so it can't be filibustered. So it doesn't need any Democrats. And they made it very clear. We're not going to have hearings. We're not going to have any discussions. We're not going to, you know, figure out what's out there. We're not going to listen to people. We're just going to write this in secret. 13 men. Um, That didn't work. Now, if they do that same thing, use a budget reconciliation process, pass a budget, and go through the same thing without any hearings, discussion, bringing experts in, having everybody understand what this is going to be like at the end of the day, it's it's not going to be successful.
1: What do you think the uh, the odds are of th- this happening and, and uh, this happening this year?
2: Look, I'd love to see tax reform that allowed American families to feel like they were going to be able to grow their wages again. That's a hard chore in a time when we have real challenges today. It's even worse when we have a Republican Party who says, wait, we're just going to give Tax breaks away to wealthy people, and it's going to somehow trickle down to you, and we're going to use obscure budget The president procedures.
1: says that he wants a big middle-class tax cut as yeah, part words, of
2: this. Words are, are important. Policy is real. And uh, I'll tell you uh, right now, let, let's just back up a minute. He's talking about tax reform, um, using some kind of obscure budget numbers to reconcile that he what he's got is not going to be a big cost to our deficit and debt. At the same time, we have North Korea. Yeah. We have a country that is uh, where people who voted for him want to know they've got the skills for the jobs in their communities, where we have a huge disaster in Texas today that is obviously going to cost billions of dollars. The, how does how do you reconcile giving big tax breaks to people with those outstanding costs out there?
1: The uh, You mentioned the storm, uh, Hurricane Harvey, and the aftermath of that. There's talk that... Uh, They may uh, try and attach um, hurricane relief to the debt ceiling bill. Would that that be a smart thing to do?
2: Well, both of them need to be done. You know, I I, you guys
1: have a tradition of must pass bills and taking difficult stuff and attaching it to must pass bills. Everybody seems to agree that Harvey is a must must, relief is a much must pass bill. The debt ceiling is quite controversial.
2: Well, it is controversial by those who say they want to use it to get something else, like huge pay it. Look, what the debt ceiling bill is about, really, is paying what you owe. It's like a family who takes out a mortgage and then says, well, I don't want to pay this, so I'm not going to pay it. You you don't do that. You pay your bills. So it's a must-do bill. It's a crazy procedure, but it's a must-do bill. We have our responsibility. We have the keys to that car, and we've got a responsibility, and we need to pass it.
1: So, is it smart? Would this might be the best way to get this done? Is to combine these two things? Sure,
2: absolutely.
1: Mm-hmm. And uh, you mentioned North Korea. Uh, as we sit here uh, in you know in the long saga of U.S. North Korean relations, we've never been. At this point where uh, both sides are, are openly talking about uh, the, uh, the use of, of nuclear weapons or at least hinting at That's them. Right what what is your sense from your perspective as a leader in the Senate of uh, the, the approach the president's taken and, and and in fairness, presidents of both parties have been stymied by, the north koreans but sure. what 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 should happen at this juncture
2: we are sitting here today in seattle we are very conscious of where north korea is and what their capability could possibly be and what it would mean to our state and our region much less to our country they are a real threat they have a leader who seems bent on showing the world his prowess through nuclear force we have a leader who needs to learn that two bullies on a playground one-upping each other is not a way to solve problems. That's what concerns me. Uh, We as a nation need to have a strong prevention program. We need to work with our global allies. We need to send messages in very strong ways, in multiple ways, uh, through the economy, through working with other world leaders, that it is not acceptable what North Korea is doing. But, but I do worry about the language the president is using and the one-upping uh, these two world leaders are doing to each other that could lead to a fistfight on a playground that will not Do you think he's moved us
1: closer to armed conflict Look, with his rhetoric? Uh,
2: uh, okay, I used to teach preschool, and I told my kids bullies don't win, um, but they do cause problems, and we have to all speak to that collectively and say bullies can't win. We, we don't need a leader who is bullying today to solve a problem that is very real. That does frighten me. I think that we need to have a leader who projects uh, strength, but without calling names and without upping the rhetoric. The
1: uh, If he were here, I'm sure he'd say that we've tried the approach of involving an international community of sanctions, of U.N. Dis- disapprobation, and... We've seen a steady advance of this nuclear program. Well,
2: we've seen a huge steady advance in the past few months of the testing and movement. Is that because of the bullying or not? I think that the bullying doesn't help that at all.
1: What about uh, what about the uh, suggestion of pulling out of the trade agreement with South Korea at this juncture? I,
2: I am... I am I'm stunned that the president made those kind of comments right now. The people of South Korea need to be part of the global community. They are the neighbors right there. They are the millions of people who will have the first impact. We need their support. We need their help. And we need them as part of a global community.
1: Let me um, let me just finish up by asking you about uh, the Senate and the Congress in the era of Trump and how that has impacted uh relationships there, what kind of uh, sense do you get from your colleagues on the other side of the aisle about how they're processing all of this? He ran as sort of an opponent of Washington generally. He's not a natural ally of Mitch McConnell or Paul Ryan uh, and many of the people who are in the Congress.
2: I don't think I've ever worked with a president who loves Congress, but I have worked with presidents that respect Congress. And respect gets you a lot further than putting people down, or calling them names, or again bullying them. Bullying gets you headlines; certainly gets you attention, but it doesn't create deals and it doesn't solve problems.
1: You know, if I I know the president is an inveterate listener of the podcast, so if what was your impression of his tactic in? in challenging Mitch McConnell as he did, and knowing McConnell as you do, and you know him very, very well, uh, what do you think that's likely to produce?
2: Not much <laughs> you don't you don't get the respect and the ability to work with somebody if you're putting them down. Uh, in ways that are disrespectful.
1: But McConnell himself, what would you read of him and how he would interpret he's very,
2: that? He's a quiet leader, and more than anything, he respects the institution of the Senate, which sounds really boring, except... That is how we get things done in this country, whether it's a budget, whether it's policies like family leave, whether it's health care, whether it's you have to be able to respect each other within the Senate. It's why the women senators get together. It's why Mitch McConnell spends time on the floor talking to senators. You have to respect each other to move things forward. When you inject disrespect, then you inject the um, intolerance for each other and it doesn't get things done.
1: Do you think uh, – how would that impact on uh, the president's ability to, uh, to get things done? Well, I mean, do you think McConnell – I mean, yeah. there are a million ways in which a leader can be helpful or unhelpful. I've
2: already seen it, actually, because we had a budget deal that we had to get done in March – and what i saw is republicans virtually ignore the president's budget and work with democrats to get a budget and appropriations bills done in a timely way that funded things not the way i love i mean obviously i'd like more investments but in a way that can move us forward we are now entering the month of september when a lot has to be done from harvey funding to the debt ceiling to the children's insurance program to to the budget and appropriations If we ignore the president's bullying and work together uh, in the Senate and get it done in the best way possible, I actually think that's what the country wants. I I don't think families across our country like chaos. They don't like uncertainty. They don't like infighting. What they want is for their country to feel secure to them, and I'm hoping that's what the Senate does.
1: Senator Patty Murray, thank you so much for being
0: with us. Thank you. Thank you for listening to The Axe Files, part of the CNN Podcast Network. For more episodes of The Axe Files, visit cnn.com slash podcast and subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite app. And for more programming from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics, visit politics.uchicago.edu. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs, so you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores? Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now save 40% on Sleep Number special edition smart bed for a limited time.